I'm Richard, and welcome to Esoteric's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of August 5th, 2013. Join us this week as we talk with Scott Smith about his 29 Palms photographic series celebrating the varied beauty of Southern California's palm trees. We'll also visit with performance artist Tim Yude while he types a Charles Bukowski novel in the bed of a rented pickup truck outside the former Terminal Annex post office where Charles Bukowski worked for a decade. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to 5th and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So we did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, Midoriya, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome to our podcast for the week of August 5th, 2013. This is You Can't Eat the Sunshine. I'm Richard. I'm Kim. And we're just, we're mixing it up just a little bit in our, our general introduction, keeping it, keeping you on your toes. Today, for interviews, we have two, as always, Scott Smith, photographer, talking about his photographic Type, typog, typographic photographic series, 29 Palms, and Tim Ude, a performance artist who, is, who typed Charles Bukowski's post office in factotum in the parking lot of Terminal Annex, and who's going to, in addition to discussing his method in general, the process in particular for, for post office, also outline uh, future plans to type other great Los Angeles novels. So we're we're really excited, and we look forward to you listening to all of these. And Kim, at this point, it's it's time to talk about the Pishka. That 
That's right, Richard. We have a digital tip jar. And if you enjoy this podcast, which we certainly hope that you do, we encourage you to consider throwing a little something in that digital tip jar, which we will apply towards the cost of gasoline as we travel the highways and the byways of Southern California looking for people to talk to for you to listen to. Such support is always appreciated, and we thank you for considering and for listening. All right, Kim, thank you. Let's move into the closely watched train section of this podcast, one of the livelier moments and one of the more interesting points for people to gain insight into the, the dynamic of our of our marriage. Kim, first on the list today, uh, just a, a note, no no URL, uh, no no point of reference for further perusal, uh, but I certainly encourage anyone who, who can document this to please pass it along. Um, we spoke to some of our friends who are transit advocates, and I have noticed, actually, I've actually empirically confirmed this, Metro, at the end of June, moved a great deal of the bus traffic off of Broadway onto either Spring or Hill. And they've done this because of the Broadway Master Street Scam, Street Scam, <laughs> Street Plan. Ooh. That was great. Wow, I couldn't. I God, that's so great. I'm so happy. Because of the Broadway Master Street Plan, having uh, Strategy 1, Phase 1 financing being uh, cleared by City Council uh, on uh, former Mayor Villaraigosa's last day in office. So, so that's, that's interesting. Um, Broadway has markedly fewer buses. I will mention in passing, as I mentioned in passing many things, that... Uh, Positive public space makes for good public transit because a big part of positive public space are connections or transfer points. And Broadway, um, up until last month, was a transit hub. Uh, and the reason people can catch buses and make connections is because you just have to cross the street, uh, walking two blocks one way to Hill or Spring, to Hill from Spring or other way that that's not really making for quick transfers and I think that's really going to cut down on people making their connections and I think it, it makes for bad public transit and there you go this is all to bring up the notion that you've probably figured out Broadway is very much on my mind and so our second of the Broadway on my mind walking tours in the Flanor in the City series will be at the end of this month, August Sunday, August 25th at 2 p.m. immediately following our free monthly Lava Sunday Salon. Probably more like 2.30. Oh, did I say 2.30? Two, yeah. It takes a little while to yeah, get out I, of the I, I have Yes, 2.30. I'm sorry. The salon ends at 2. Uh, but we'll, it's, it's a seamless. It's, it's seamless. So just come for the salon. Stay for the tour. There you go. I'm going to take a breath, and Kim, you're going to take a... Interject, because we forgot to put on the closely watched trains this week something else that happened at the end of the uh, month of June, the transition from Mayor Villaraigosa to Mayor Garcetti. Uh, We had to decide what we were going to do about our campaign to save the destroyed, I won't say endangered, Felix the Cat neon sign. Um, If you've been following our activities, you know that we're really sad that Felix the Cat down on Figueroa at Felix Chevrolet, which is widely considered the most beloved and best neon sign in Los Angeles, was with no public notice at all, transitioned, restored, recreated, if you will, as an LED sign, which promptly failed in the fall. Um, 
super sad. And this is a story about how um, a historic preservation nomination was was pushed aside by the powers of politicians serving. Um, no, it's very wealthy donors. The owners of Felix Chevrolet didn't want their sign to be a landmark because they said that would stand in the way of future development, but they promised through a letter from the mayor's office to the Cultural Heritage Commission that they were going to restore and preserve and protect and maintain the sign, and if they ever wanted to do anything else, they would donate it to a museum. They mentioned the Peterson, which is having its own problems right now. They also mentioned Museum of Neon Art. Of course, none of that happened. So we petitioned, um, about 600 people signed the petition, uh, Mayor Villaraigosa, then Councilwoman Jan Perry, General Motors, which paid for this greening, in quotes, because it actually is not greener to put LED in. It's greener to keep neon working. Um, and Felix Chevrolet to restore the sign that they had damaged after promising that they wouldn't. And there was absolutely no response, none. I guess uh, it just wasn't going to be the last thing that Mayor Villaraigosa did. Well, he did have from February to June to think about it. So... Is this something we're going to ask Mayor Garcetti to take on? No. It's over. The sign has been destroyed. I don't think that Felix Chevrolet should be getting any more free publicity for having the best neon sign in Los Angeles, though, since they no longer have a neon sign. They have an LED replica of a wonderful historic neon sign. Boo. And uh, you can read all about it on the Fix Felix the Cat blog, which we will link to, but I do think that as sad as it is that this is a preservation failure, it's a wonderful cautionary tale for what not to allow to happen in the future. Um, Politicians will make all kinds of promises trying to stop a preservation action from taking place. Their promises are worthless, and this is proof. So if Felix the Cat does nothing else with his last life, let him be a really good cautionary tale for how you always have to fight to get official landmarking, and don't let him stop you. Okay, so Kim, just to just sort of, uh, since you are putting that to bed, let's just explicitly put some things on the table. The reason you can't trust politicians, specifically, and let's just put this on the table, is politicians are elected officials. Elected officials are inherently in debt at the time of their election. In order to get elected, you're in debt to people, and that's that's what makes politicians untrustworthy not that uh, that fails to make them trustworthy because they're they're just in tremendous debt to a small group of very powerful wealthy people also when you say official landmark status what you mean is you want signs on buildings or the buildings themselves to be put under the historic cultural monument status per the municipal code and that's a that's a great thing so because then there are people you can call and you can say, hey, there are men on cherry pickers messing with the Felix the Cat sign, which is a city landmark, which it almost was in 2007. And uh, they're really, really good at sending folks down and stopping work. We uh, helped to save a wonderful sign in West Adams. Did we not? Yes. Yes. And we will continue to blow the whistle whenever we can, but you can only protect things that are protected. So protect things. Okay. Are you, are you a leaker or a whistleblower, Kim? <laughs> I try to be both. But I try not to leak too much. Okay. On the front page of the New York Times. So my birth, that was an Edward Snowden joke. The New New York Times. Go on. My birthday bus has been posted 
in the calendar. My birthday bus is Saturday, November 30th. It's a tour. It's a bus tour. I was getting to that, darling. It's on the calendar. It's on the Esoteric calendar. Everything on the Esoteric calendar is a bus tour because that's what we do at Esoteric. It's eight hours. It's $47. It's my 45th birthday. We will be going to Antelope Valley. Desk stops will include Antelope Valley Indian Museum, a, dis- a cool discussion of the history of this really important and interesting museum by its founding curator and its present curator. Both are totally right on sisters, and Southern California owes a great deal to these two, two visionary ladies. We'll also be going to the Arthur Ripley uh, Wilderness Preserve, which is a state park about half, uh, about 45 minutes west of the Antelope Valley Museum. This, these are both in Lancaster. Maybe you figure that out. Uh, Ranger Jean is going to give us a walkthrough of this perfectly intact nature preserve, which it's like is a Joshua Tree Forest. It's right? it's a it's a nature preserve. So if you ever wondered, and I, I know most people do, what the Antelope Valley looked like in say. 1880. This is this is a, a really great way to, to figure that out. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're, we're probably going to pick up one or two more uh, locations in Antelope Valley as as the, the the date approaches. It is a bit off, so um, it is it is a ways away. So you just get excited. And so. There'll be cake, and Richard's mother will be on the bus, and there'll be a lot of embarrassing photos of you from childhood, maybe even some moving images. Always a very fun tour, and um, we're charging, of course, less than a regular bus tour because it's a birthday party. So come be part of it. Right, and and you have to bring your lo- it, it, okay. So this is what so these these tours are the, the template for the birthday bus tours are all the same. We bring the the coffee. I bring two cambros, one for lunch and a cambro for the cake. We bring the cake. Everyone brings their lunch and we picnic, and and it's eight hours. And you just if you really have to be on the bus emotionally, it's it's a, it's, it's a great spiritual exercise. So, <laughs> moving on, uh, Broadway is always on my mind, and it's so funny. I'm I'm walking down Los Tunas Boulevard to pick up the takeout at our favorite Noodle House. And and here it is, Broadway's on my mind. I'm on Las Tunas Boulevard in Temple City, and I'm told that Temple City now has a master streetscape plan. And it sounds exactly the same as Broadway's. It's got all the same features. Wow. Do they just like, I think they have like a machine. They put a quarter in and it, no, they, it issues they, a streetscape they, they plan. They come out of graduate school. Yeah. 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 So Temple City has a master streetscapes plan, and it's exactly the same as Broadway's. Uh, in Broadway's defense, Calvin Hamilton, the city planner for Los Angeles in the early 60s, he was really the guy with his publication of Centropolis uh, in the early 60s to, to f- uh, spearhead this reinvention of Broadway. And it's really everything, everything every reinvention of Broadway has come out of Calvin Hamilton. The current one, though, has a lot of language that I think is very much au courant in uh, doctoral candidates and master. Can you get a PhD in urban planning? You mostly get masters. I think you get, anyway, uh, whatever whatever graduate schools are putting masters out. Masters work, doctors teach. Yeah, yeah, master's degrees, yeah. That's enough. So what, whatever, whatever is coming out of the graduate programs of the, the top Universities for urban planning. That's that's what the current Broadway plan has. But I will mention, if you think about it, the reinvention of downtown, which the current Broadway Master Streetscape plan is the latest instance of, 
it still holds the principal abstraction which Calvin Hamilton put forth, which is to reinvent downtown, which means to ruin it. You, you, have, to, you have to separate transit and movement into three distinct and separate areas. Pedestrian, uh, well, car, you obviously have cars, light rail, pedestrian, and people mover. And the people mover you just replaced with streetcar. And they're both equally absurd and preposterous. I want the people mover. <laughs> I, I do too, but we're not going to... You know what my favorite thing to do when you, when you get to LAX is, is to walk really fast on the people mover. Yeah, that's not the... Yeah, that's... And okay. also, Los Tunis... Listen, people, get in your cars or your buses or your people movers. I don't care. Go to Los Tunis Boulevard in Temple City. It is a beautiful single-story... Circa 1940 Main Boulevard. And it's obviously not long for this world. There's some beautiful storefronts. It's a great place to buy a wedding dress if you're a fancy Taiwanese lady. There's some terrific food. And uh, it's really, really special. And I hope, hope, hope. Um, You know, Richard, the biggest problem with changes that happen in small towns? People have terrible taste. That's a problem for the city of Los Angeles, too, Kim. That's just a universal challenge that people, people don't know what they're doing. So, that's it. God save Los Tunis. Get on, get on Los Tunis Boulevard in Temple City. Poke around. It's a lot of fun. And remember the abstraction Calvin Hamilton presented. Uh, light rail, people mover, pedestrian. It's, it's still, still trying to be played out on Broadway and in downtown. People mover. Give me my people mover. Kim, the Holy Grail is in sight Whole for downtown. Whole Foods is coming to 7th and Grand. 2015? Yeah, people seem excited about it. So, gen- genuflect when you say that. I, I know I know they're genuflect when you say that. Uh, Kim Barlow Hospital, the Barlow Sanitarium, the Respiratory in Hospital. Elysian Park. Beautiful, in Elysian Park. Beautiful, beautiful site. Uh, sounds like they've got a buyer for half their property, which is currently not zoned for the development I'm sure the proposed buyer wants to do. So we're going to keep a watch on that. I hope that it'll just be bought by someone who wants to keep it as green space. Um, maybe this is just going to be a flip. That would be nice. You know, it's it's a turn-of-the-last-century respiratory hospital. It's, it's part of the old TB zone of Southern California. It's quite important, very beautiful, and uh, I think that the addition of anything with a bigger footprint is going to create a traffic disaster for that part of the world, which uh, it already is suffering regularly with the Dodgers, so we really want to keep an eye on it. It's beautiful green space. You, you know what, Kim? You're, we're going to leave it to the infinite wisdom of the Planning and Land Use Management Commission of the City of Los Angeles well, to, to make job, sure... Yes. That, that that doesn't happen. We're just going to leave that to their infinite wisdom as they hold these public assets in trust for the citizens of Los Angeles. Elysian Park? Okay, Elysian Park isn't held in the public trust. They, they're, they're, they're the guys that are supposed to, you know, yeah, make know, the right decisions. Okay, they, 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 hold, they hold the keys. Okay, I, think, so, I think Barlow should just take care of people with lung disorders. Okay, I think... I think they should let us uh, give us permission to do a walking tour of their facility not on a gonna Sunday. Not going to happen now. Yeah, not going to happen now. Okay. Kim, Ed has a book of poetry. Ed out. Rosenthal. Yes. So why don't you read us the title of his book of poetry, which will go a great deal to explain 
the topic of the book of poetry. Yeah, the title of Ed Rosenthal's new book is The Desert Hat, Survival Poems, A True Story of Getting Lost and Being Found in Joshua Tree. Okay, that's great. Ed, of course, famously brokered the lease of Clifton's Cafeteria uh, to Andrew Myron, uh, leasing it, letting the Clinton family lease the space and secure the rights to the LLC, which is Clifton's Cafeteria, to Andrew Myron back in 2010. And he promptly went to celebrate with a hike in Joshua Tree. He promptly got lost and... uh, Seven days later, found himself uh, alive in a hospital room in a hospital in San Bernardino. So, it's uh, there's a lot there. So a lot there. Doesn't Ed have his own radio show now? Yeah, Red uh, Ed, Red Ed is doing a radio show um, over at Skid Row Studios, where where you recently interviewed uh, one of Charles Bukowski's old flames. And uh, this is a downtown themed show, so we'll link to that as well. All right, good, 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 good. We're done with watched trains. We're going to let them just chug on into the night. All its pa- all the passengers slumbering as they, they get rocked in and out of consciousness. Mind, you know, heedless, blind to whatever travesties are awaiting them. I hope when they wake up they get a really good breakfast and they serve it on very nice pottery. I bet they will. Kim, some upcoming events. We'll get to the bus tours at the end, but we've got some special events coming up. Uh, do you do you want to want to start ticking through them? Well, of course, every month we do a Lava Sunday Salon. Last Sunday of the month, it's a free cultural gathering on Broadway, and uh, this month we have one of our. Favorite Angelinos, Paul Nugent, who runs the Ethereus. Reverend, Reverend Paul yes, Nugent. Reverend Paul Nugent, who runs the Ethereus Society in Hollywood, which is perhaps the most esoteric ashram in the flats of Hollywood. There are some pretty wild ones up in the hills. Uh, and he'll be talking about Dr. George King's vision from other realms, which came to him when he was a taxi driver in London and a yogi, and how he brought that vision to Hollywood and has spread it worldwide. It's a, it's a very, very interesting and unusual faith. We've taken people to Ethereus on our occasional tours of spiritual Los Angeles sites, Maja's Mysteries, and folks go in not knowing what to expect, and they come out completely captivated and charmed, and I know you will be too if you come and hear what Reverend Paul Nugent has to share. Well, Paul's message is is quite simple. Uh, God is the underlying substrate for everything. God is... You can't begin to conceive of what God is. It's too complicated. The The universe exists of this infinite plane where little universes come in and out of existence. They're born. They die. They're born again. And and third and, and last is, is we all have... This soul, which which makes up our, which sort of drives our body, and that soul has a, a pilgrimage of, of millions of lifetimes. That's that's basically what Ethereus is about. Sure, and and the way that these messages are conveyed are through the channeling of ascended masters who exist all throughout the universe, and Dr. King fascinatingly, uh, for a Hollywood 1960s character, because they are all the recording studios in Hollywood, he was in a soundproof room over on Afton with the best microphones in the world, and he was channeling voices from other planets that came through him and were recorded. Fascinating stuff. 
Also, Carlton Davis will be speaking. He'll be talking following up my tour uh, the day before my public space tour of downtown, the lowdown on downtown. He'll be talking about the Pickle Works, which was his home base for his art dock gallery. Uh, Carlton's basically going to give us a history of the, the first 10, 15 years of the art dist- arts district as a arts district with the creation of the Artist-in-Residence Ordinance, which was first implemented on the Pickle Works building. So if you're interested in how the arts district was born, get to this. After the salon, salon's 12 to 2. This is at Figaro Bistro. Uh, specifically, it's its proper title is La Nose de Figaro, uh, which which some people stumble over, so I just call it Figaro Bistro. Thank you, uh, I appreciate it. Sixth and Broadway, across from the Los Angeles Theater, noon to two is the salon. My walking tour, Broadway on my mind. Then the second in the series is at two thirty, and it's just going to be a lot of fun. What Kim? What else? We have we have a tile tour of the Roebling Building, Sunday, September twenty fifth. Brian Kaiser is going to be talking about the Bachelder Tile uh, in the lobby of the Roebling Building. This is where Angel City Brewery is at first in Alameda. Right, and if you've ever noticed, they have a a corner building that has a little point over on Alameda. That corner is their original lobby, uh, which folks don't necessarily get into when they're visiting the brewery, but it's an astonishing space with uh, custom Bachelder Tiles, which were created to tell the story of the Roebling family's... uh, 60-year rise to captains of industry in America. They they did, were doing suspension bridges, tiny little ones, um, in, in the Middle West, and then they developed the suspension ropes, the metal ropes which were used to string up the Brooklyn Bridge, and eventually they were uh, constructing this stuff nationwide. Fascinating company. And the tiles, the Bachelder, the great Arroyo craftsman created uh, as a gift from the employees are really very, very special. And Brian is, of course, the Southern California tile expert, knows a great deal about Bachelder. And he's been researching these particular tiles, which although they started as a private commission and are installed in this beautiful lobby, which also includes a curving staircase made of this metal robe. Which is an incredible staircase. Um, they he ended up adapting some of these designs yeah. into his uh, commercially available catalog work. So we're gonna have a lot of fun. We'll have some beer. We'll learn a thing or two. Come join us. It's free. Right, and Brian's just uh, obviously if you're interested in in uh, decorative ceramic tile in Los Angeles in the teens and twenties, this is a great talk to come to. So there you go. Some upcoming events. We'll we'll rattle off some bus tours as we wrap up the podcast. I I want to now just quickly introduce our two guests. I'll I'll interview Tim last, so I'll introduce him first. So Tim Yote, he's a performance artist, despite what he used to think. <laughs> he's a performance artist now. Tim Yude. Tim. Oh, I, I'm sorry. That's okay. Tim Yude. Tim you. is typing. Tim. At our interview is in the middle of typing factotum, just having finished Charles Bukowski's post office. So novels one and two of Charles Bukowski in the parking lot of the Terminal Annex. Tim is interested in the act. I just you need to listen to the interview. I'm not even going to get into it. It's it's very interesting what he's doing and this process, this series will encompass a lot of major Los Angeles novels in relevant locations to them. And and I just I'm very happy that we're we're gonna we're gonna help him get to uh, get.
get to yes at several of these locations for oh, other he's novels. he's completely hooked. I mean, now he's just thinking locations and places. And I love that he's doing this because, especially now where people are buying books digitally and in many cases pirating the purchase of digital books, uh, it's so easy to forget how much actual labor goes into the production of a book. And it's an enormous amount. And so to be able to see him typing and to see the physical manifestations on the page, which are not a typical typed page, as you'll hear, I think is, is, is a very powerful thing. And it's something that I uh, think goes beyond an artistic statement and goes well into a statement about the value of labor and creativity. Thank you, Kim. Our, our first interview will be with Scott Smith. Scott Smith is a good friend of ours. He started his career as an architectural photographer and, and did, of course, architectural photography for a, a long time. And, and this is a long way of saying Scott has always been interested in large format photography of subject matter which requires per, the, right to, the right light and the right timing, just uh, large scale, really composition along I guess all photographers worry about this but you're going to listen to the interview and I think it really makes sense that he comes out of an architectural photography background for what he's going to describe as as the way he created his series 29 Palms which I will I will let Kim explain well, if you have been attending the Lava Sunday Salons, you may have heard Scott talk about this project. That was a real hit, and we'll link to the video from his talk. Yeah. Um, but he was walking an elderly dog uh, regularly and spending a lot of time just sort of lingering near trees, and he started to notice how very, very beautiful and uh, different the trunks of palm trees were. And once he began to notice, uh, he looked for more and discovered that although people tend to look at palm trees and just see this sort of shaggy lollipop, if you focus on the trunks, there's so much more going on. And he envisioned this project where palms of many different sizes would be photographed, cut off without any, any fronds and without a base at the same scale. And uh, so 29 ultimately became the number of palms, and some of them were the most extraordinary weird things you've ever seen in your life. All of them are beautiful. And they are enormous photographs, in, in some cases quite a bit larger than life size, and really a just wonderful Southern California project. We're very happy to be in the loop on their development. Thank you, Kim. So let's take it away with my interview with Scott. Scott, I'm here with you at the Botanical Garden at UCLA, and I want you to properly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about an, a photographic exhibit that we're going to be talking about for this podcast, which is currently up, that you've, that you've produced. Okay, I have a selection of images showing at Joe's Restaurant on Abbot Kinney in Venice at the moment. Uh, it's a selection of seven images from the series 29 Palms, which there are 29 total. But the show is going to be up until mid-October. It's, it's currently up, so you can actually go and see it. Uh, you can pop your head in there, or you can go for brunch or lunch or dinner and uh, sit amongst the palms. Perfect. I need you to tell us your name, though. Oh, Okay. This is Scott Smith. I'm a fine art photographer. I've done a series called 29 Palms, where I photographed the trunks of 29 palm trees 
uh, around Southern California from San Diego to Santa Barbara. And I currently have a selection of those images, seven in total, hanging at Joe's Restaurant in Venice on Abbot Kinney. Perfect. That's, that's perfect. The show at Joe's is up through mid-October? Yes. Uh, it was supposed to end after seven weeks or so, but it's staying up through the summer by popular demand. Uh, uh, the chef and owner of Joe's, uh, Joseph Miller, uh, he's kind of loving how the palms look there during the summer, so it's going to be the summer of palms at Joe's restaurant. Excellent. So people should get down get some lunch, get some brunch, what have you. Go look at the canals afterwards. Okay, we are in this corner of the Botanical Garden. We are standing in front of a palm, which is part of your series, 29 Palms. The Brazilian thorn palm. Oh, the Brazilian needle palm. Um, We're standing in the Mildred E. Mathias Botanical Garden, which is on the eastern side of the UCLA campus, and it's a wonderful garden that was begun in 1929. And it's kind of a, a laboratory, a, a botanical la- laboratory here. And there are many different species of palms. And I searched all over Southern California for a perfect specimen of this particular palm that we're looking at. It's the Brazilian needle palm. And uh, it, it's an extraordinary palm because it's very thorny, and you can't get very close to this palm without getting stuck in some way. And it, it's visually just so stunning. When I photographed it, I, I actually watched it for about a day to see when the light would be perfect. And then had my 8x10 camera set up to photograph it in the perfect light. Wonder- wonderful. So that's, this is the context for our interview. I want you to tell us how you conceived of and began to execute, and finally, after great effort and a lot of time, finished this series, 29 Palms. Yes, I I originally became interested in palms because I was walking my dog through a park in Santa Monica, a palm-lined park, uh, Palisades Park, uh, and my dog was slowing down in his old age, and and he was sort of sniffing around the bases of the palms. And I, I suddenly started staring at the landscapes on these palms and realizing that there was just this extraordinary detail and landscape on the trunks of the palms. And I wanted to somehow render that uh, with photography. So I, I actually went out and bought an 8x10 view camera. I, I was formerly a an architectural photographer and always shot in 4x5, but this needed something with even more resolution to, to render the detail that I was seeing. I wanted, to, I wanted people to be able to experience what I was seeing just face-to-face with this palm trunk. Wonderful. So that's, that's how it started. I, was, I, I remember you gave a nice lecture at Lava, and you described what type of, of photography... This, this series is? Yes, well, I didn't realize I was doing this at first, but when I went around and I started photographing different palms, I did a lot of study shots with a digital camera, and I was looking at palms from all sides, and I was 
photographing palm fronds and the inflorescences and infructescences, infructescences which, which are basically the fruit, what, what would be the dates if it were a date palm, but they're basically the seeds. Uh, I photographed the bases and eventually zeroed in on the trunks of the palms. And then to sort of standardize the images after a while, looking at them, trying to make it into a cohesive collection or series, I, I started framing all the palm trunks, even though they were many different widths, I started framing them in the same way. And then realized, as I was also studying and reading a, about other types of photography, that what I was doing was really typology. And uh, a great example of uh, typological photography is are, are the water towers that Burnton Hilla Becker shot in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And uh, also Ed Ruscha did a series called 31 Gas Stations. And if you look at those, they... There are many different types of gas stations, but they're all gas stations. So you really, it, it sort of narrows your focus down to something, but then you notice the differences between these things that are very similar, and you realize the incredible variety. And that's what I was trying to achieve with the palms once I realized that what I was doing was typology. Perfect. So maybe getting into the middle, we'll, we'll step back in a second, but when did you conceive of it's it's a very shallow focus it's just the this is a podcast so we're going to try and be fairly literal but how did you come to this sort of standard composition of the emphasis on the trunk with the shallow focus the the great depth of resolution well i was trying to get back to that first epiphany that I had when I was walking my dog and I was standing right in front of the trunk of a palm and looking at it and realizing that there's this wonderful landscape there and the texture and the color and so that's eventually what I got back to realizing it wasn't the palm fronds or the base or anything it's the trunk that I wanted to isolate and then I realized that to make this a cohesive series uh, they needed to be the same width in the frame. I needed to standardize that. So it wouldn't be all higgledy-piggledy. It would just be palm trunks, the same width in the frame, and then you would notice the great variety of the different types of trunks. How extraordinary, even though it's just a single column, how varied they can be. Wonderful. So let's get to the narrative of getting these shot. Let's get to some of the basic, uh, I, I guess probably the, the most fundamental challenge for you was figuring out what species of palms were available for, for, for you to shoot and, and how to start figuring out where they were located. Yes, uh, so I started shooting the sort of usual suspects around town, the ones you see on city streets and people's gardens and had a maybe six or seven of these palms and I thought I had a series and then my partner Kate came up with the brilliant idea of calling the series 29 palms and then I had to find something like 22 or 23 more palms 
to shoot and I had run out of ideas because all I could see on the city streets were the same palms all the time. So I had to go undercover. I joined the Southern California Palm Society. And I, so I infiltrated this group and really then learned where all the great palms were. And they usually were in some public gardens, but often in the private gardens of the Palm Society members, which was by invitation only. So you, I really had to learn the names, the Latin names of all the palms. And it, it was kind of like you, you had to speak Latin to join this group because otherwise they wouldn't take you seriously. And so learning the names of the palms and discussing the palms with with the Palm Society members and attending their auctions of palms, uh, I, I became familiar with what I wanted to shoot and then sought out those palms. Okay, let's let's take a breath because this is great. Okay, so you 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 became you 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 ingratiated yourself with a local society that that knew what they were talking about when it came to palms. You identified your subjects. Now get us to start start us down the path of how you went about photographing them. Yes. So I bought this 8x10 view camera, which was actually a studio camera uh, from the 50s. It wasn't really a field <laughs> camera. And uh, so I set about, you know, taking it outdoors. And it really looks, it's so big, it looks like a rocket launcher. And I had a, I had a cart that I would wheel it around with, uh, the camera and the tripod and sandbags. And, and uh, so really, m- most of the deciding and, and scoping out which palms I, I was going to shoot, I did with a digital camera. And then when I finally decided, okay, this is a prime candidate for, for the series, then I would get out the big gun to go photograph it. And... I would shoot Polaroids. This is the kind of camera where you have a dark cloth over your head and and there's a bellows and it's very difficult to see in the images upside down and backwards. So to focus from one end to the other, you have to have a loop against the ground glass and it's very difficult, especially with uh, any kind of wind, vibrations. Um, it, it's difficult to shoot. So you drag the, that camera out when you know you're ready. Plus, the films are expensive to, to shoot and to process. So, you, you know you have to have decided on the right palm when you, when you get to that point. What name? Tell us two separate stories of the hardest specimens to capture in terms of, of logistics, of get, getting there, getting the camera into the position you need, getting access to the grounds where the palm is, I, I know you can think of five, but just, yes. just, just, just pick two. Okay, one that comes to mind at first is a palm that's in the palm gardens at the Huntington Gardens uh, in San Marino. And this is, uh, it's called the Kencha palm. Uh, it goes by other common names like the Century palm, or the Latin name is Hauia forsteriana. And it was a really beautiful palm, and I was walking through the gardens off the path, which I, I don't think you are really allowed to do there, but with my digital camera. And a shaft of light was coming down and raking across the front of the tree, 
And so I photographed it with the digital camera, and I loved that shot. And, but within minutes, the light had just disappeared. So I, I made note of the time that the light was coming down and was back there the next day with the 8x10 view camera. So the very next day, I have the camera set up about 10 minutes ahead of time, waiting for this light to appear, and I'm ready to shoot my Polaroid so I know the focus is right. And, and so the light appears, and then I shoot the Polaroid, and then I'm ready to, to put the actual 8x10 film in and to do my exposures, and suddenly the light just goes, disappears. And then it's like someone flipped a light switch and, and it was gone. So I had to then come back the next day, and I got there a little bit earlier the next day, and then I realized that there was sort of a, a little oculus in the canopy above me where the sunlight was shafting down, and I could see the circle of light moving over toward the palm, and I thought, well, maybe it's going to miss it today, and maybe I, I won't be able to get this again until next year, And uh, but I I had the camera already with the film. I had shot the Polaroid the day before, so I knew what my exposure was going to be. So I was ready there to pounce as soon as the the, the light reached the the palm. And it did. It hit the palm in the same way, and it's just raking down the front of the palm. And so I quickly shot about five exposures. And then, again, like someone flipped a light switch and it was gone. And this palm was actually about a a quarter of a mile from the entrance of the Huntington. <laughs> and and I didn't really want to bring my wagon this time because I didn't want to attract that much attention to myself. I did get permission from the Huntington to shoot. But when you actually show up with an 8x10, and as I said, it looks like a rocket launcher, uh, you, you know, it raises some eyebrows. What tell us tell us one more vast logistical challenge you you were able to the river you were able to ford to get to an exposure that you were happy with. Okay. Well, I was photographing palms at one of the Palm Society members uh houses in uh this is in Westchester in Orange County. There's a man uh he's been president several times, I think, of the Southern California Palm Society. His name is Ralph Velez, and he has a a sort of typical suburban lot uh, where, you know, there's just a sort of ranch-style house on the property, but he has over 300 different varieties of palms. And Huell Hauser actually did a piece on Ralph Velez, I think, in the 90s, where he went there and, and looked at the palms, but actually then got distracted by a lot of the other tropical plants that, that he grew there. But I was there. I was interested mainly in the palms. And one of the palms, which he actually has growing in a greenhouse because it's, a, it's more of a tropical plant and needs a more humid atmosphere, um, so I photographed this palm, which is actually not very wide at all, maybe three inches in diameter. Uh, so I had the camera quite close to the palm. And I'm, I've taken the Polaroids, and I'm just about to shoot the films, and suddenly uh, Ralph had neglected to tell me that misters would come on every ten minutes to keep the atmosphere in, 
in this greenhouse very uh, humid. So I, I had to pull my shirt off and throw it over the camera and the dark cloth over all the other equipment just to keep it from getting wet. And then the misters went off in, in, a, in about five or ten minutes. And then I went back to shooting it. But what I didn't realize that day was that... Uh, well, I knew it was windy outside, but I had forgotten that when I was inside this greenhouse. And this palm went up through the roof of the greenhouse. And the top of the palm was actually in in the outdoors and was waving back and forth. And I didn't realize how slightly the palm trunk was moving back and forth. So all the films that I shot that day were blurred because these exposures are are sometimes up to 30 seconds, and if you get any kind of movement, then it's a blur. And I didn't notice it, so I had to be back there in a few days to do it all over again, misters and all. So, these are great stories. So, I want, because this is a podcast and we can't see any of these, we'll include an an, an image on the podcast page, small one, so people can get a sense. But I want you to describe what for me was the the shocking variety of colors that that you're faced with when you you start to look at all of the photos in the series. All the colors I just was not, I did not expect to see in these beautiful trunks. Yes, I, I didn't really expect to encounter... The, the colors that I was seeing and a lot of the palms that that I was discovering in the Palm Society members' gardens and and other gardens like um, there are palm gardens at the Huntington and Lotus Land in Santa Barbara and uh, Balboa Park in San Diego. But uh, we, uh, and a lot of people have asked me, are these colors real? Because as we all know nowadays, everything can be photoshopped. But I wanted to stay true to all the colors, their natural colors, and no one, no one ever really questions the colors of butterflies. You, you see all these exotic colored butterflies and, and no one bats an eyelid, but they don't expect it in palms or palm trunks. But when you go deep and when you, when you look at all the different varieties, you know, there are some very colorful ones. What's, so what's the most colorful? Uh, well, the most colorful... Well, a very common palm that's used... I, I say palm. Uh, people call them palm trees. They're not actually trees. They're palms. They're, uh, uh, they're, they're in a class by themselves. So everyone says palm trees. If you ever said that in front of a Palm Society member, you'd get kicked out of the organization. One of the palms that... Uh, is really quite extraordinary, and it's a close cousin of a very common palm that you find in lots of people's gardens. Uh, it's a king palm, but it's a purple king. And uh, the crown uh, is is actually blue, and it's sort of speckled. Uh, you can see, actually, an example of... of a, there are a couple examples at the Huntington gardens, but I, I didn't photograph it there because it was up way too high. Uh, I couldn't get a good view of the crown from um, with the height of my tripod. But uh, at a Palm Society member's garden in Ventura, I found a perfect specimen and photographed that. 
And that is one of the problems that people question, are those colors really real? And yes, they are. And it's a shame that more of the purple kings aren't planted around the city streets, but they don't happen to sell that one at Home Depot. So most of the palms that you see around L.A. are either growing naturally or they've they've seeded themselves or they're from Home Depot, unfortunately. Okay, so let's let's bring this on home with the place we started from, which is this the Mildred E. Matthias Botanical Garden at UCLA. We started with the Brazilian thorn. The Brazilian needle palm. The Brazilian needle palm. Let's end with the Chilean wine palm, which is uh, which which is a, a palm you photographed here in the series. The Chilean wine palm, which we're standing near, uh, and for the Palm Society members, that's the Jubia chilensis, is uh, is one of the widest palms in the world. It's got a very thick trunk and it actually it's an enormous palm and in Chile wine is made from this palm I think it may be actually an endangered palm in Chile Uh, but uh, there are many good examples of this palm at uh, uh, Lotus Land in Santa Barbara and at LACMA Uh, Robert Irwin uh, installed a palm garden at LACMA a few years back and that's one that you can readily see there. And the one that's in my 29 Palm series is here at the uh, Botanical Garden at UCLA. Perfect. You did it. You, you did a great job of telling us about this series. So let's, let's take a breath. Let's, um, let's, let's bring everyone home. I want you to remind them where they can see um, a, a portion of the series that's on display right now, which is going to be on display through, through mid-October. Okay, uh, Joe's Restaurant in Venice, which has been kind of an artist hangout for the last 20, 25 years, uh, they have rotating art exhibitions there throughout the year. And uh, currently they're showing seven of my full-scale palms. The, the prints are around three feet by five feet, and they're in the main dining room and next to the bar. If you actually sit at the bar, you can look over and see the zombie palm and order a zombie if you like. But they'll be hanging until mid-October, and you can go in there anytime. You, you could pop your head in there and have a look, or you could go for brunch or lunch or dinner and uh, dine among the palms. I think they're closed on Mondays. Yes, closed on Mondays and open most of the rest of the week on weekends for brunch. Perfect, Scott. I want to, I want to thank you. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. Hi, this is Richard's mother, Barbara, and we're at Nate Now's, and you're listening to You Can Eat the Sunshine and Finish Your Soup. Tim, thank you for letting us interrupt your typing. We are here with you at the Terminal Annex 900 North Alameda in downtown Los Angeles. We're in a flatbed pickup truck. You got a typewriter out. I want you to, first of all, introduce yourself and tell us um, 
how we find ourselves sitting in the back of this rented pickup truck. Sure. Well, thanks for coming down to see me. I, I'm happy for the distraction sitting out here in the in the 90 degree weather in a parking lot. I'm a visual artist, and the series of work that I'm doing right now involves my retyping entire novels on a single sheet of paper on the same make and model typewriter as the author would have used when he or she wrote the original work. And the reason why I'm sitting in the parking lot outside the Terminal Annex is that I initiated my performance with the retyping of Charles Bukowski's post office. And it's a, you know, a fact that at least the initiate know that he worked here for 12 years as a postal clerk. And upon quitting within a month or two or three or something like that, um, wrote his first novel, Post Office. So I started that performance last Wednesday. I've been out here for five hours a day, every day, straight through. So this is day nine. I finished Post Office ahead of schedule in six days. And so then I switched to Factotum, which was his second novel. And I also switched typewriters because he wrote Post Office on an Underwood Champion and Factotum on a Royal Quiet Deluxe, which is the one that you see in front of you. So you were you were ready for uh, possibly finishing early. You had, you had a little you had a little planning worked out. Well, I was planning on the fly because when I started after the second day, I said, "Oh shit, I'm going to be way ahead." And um, I get my typewriters from a place on the west side. Of course, LA has a, a typewriter mach- machine shop, right? Um, Star Office Machines. Hermano yes. over there, um, he does a great job. And I called him up and I said, "You know, I'm going to I'm way ahead." The gallery has put out my schedule. I'm supposed to be in the parking lot here all the way through next Friday. I don't want to type post office twice, um, which is what I would have done as a fallback. I said, if you can get me a Royal Quiet Deluxe, I can type, you know, Factotum, which was his second novel, which kind of made sense to me. It's, an, you know, in the spirit of post office and menial jobs and drunkenness and, you know, just the, the misery and glory of life as Charles Bukowski saw it. So, um he got it for me in a couple days, and sure enough, I was ready to go when I started this Tuesday morning on day six. Perfect. That was fantastic. So, why don't you... This is... Now let's... We, we've described the scene. Parking lot. The liquor... You know, just in passing, the last liquor store in this neighborhood was just shut down. Oh, really? Um, we're in the parking lot. We're facing due west... We're looking directly across the parking lot at the Metro Plaza Hotel, and just two stores south of the subway was Macy Liquor, and they just shut it down about two months ago. And they should they should have done a lot of things, but uh, just you know, I I saw that and I, I thought of Charles Bukowski. I think that was probably here when he was still uh, when he was still coming here. So um, you've done a great job. That's just an aside. We're here in this parking lot. We're in the fl- we're in the pickup truck. You've got your Royal typewriter. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some more? Because this tell us more about this process of typing. Because this is part of this is an art installation. So you're not just typing on some onion skin paper and putting it in in, in, in an envelope and just sort of forgetting about it right uh thank you for for asking about that because that this really it's a it's a multi-part um piece for me it's a performance which is what i'm doing now um and i ultimately generate 
a work of art that exists past the performance. You could call it a relic of the performance or a standalone piece. I, I, in the typing or the retyping of the novel, I do it all on one sheet of paper, so I keep running that page through the typewriter over and over again. In fact, it's, it's two sheets sandwiched together, and so the top sheet takes all the ink and it becomes this very dense, of course, unreadable um, rectangle of, of ink, and the undersheet takes all the indentation. And as I go along, and as you can see here, you know, here I am in, on page 121, this top sheet's starting to rip. And so some of the ink, some of the words start to get picked up on the undersheet, and they sit at the end of it. You have this diptych of a positive and negative image um, of, uh, that's a representation of the performance and of the work, um, I think, to, together, and somehow that kind of works for me. Perfect. And let me just clarify, because I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused still. I, I understand. I'm looking at this. You, at this point, having typed a good part of Factotum, you have a solid sheet of black. You're just typing over the same page. But underneath, are you switching? At, you're, you're, you're only using two sheets. The bottom sheet doesn't change either. I understand the top sheet doesn't change, and we're looking at just a, a mass of black. But the undersheet doesn't change either, and so this gets all the impressions from the whole novel. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I'll peel it back. Right. Okay, right. Yeah, I see this. So that's... Right. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So you've got a... Po- yeah? You've got a positive and negative. Right. This is, this is absolutely beautiful. Okay, so... You've got these two documents. One, one sort of positive space, the other the, the negative space of this novel as you type it. On this beautiful royal, quiet deluxe. What what happens uh, Saturday? Because Saturday is really the the, the the denouement of this project. Sure. On Saturday, uh, there's the the Perform Chinatown event, the annual uh, gathering of performance artists in Chinatown. Uh, the, a lot of the galleries that are located down there they participate in the event, and the gallery and I staged this typing event so that. I would finish, originally I would finish post office, but now I'm going to finish factotum on the, on the day, which is in two days, you know, on Saturday from 10 to 5. I think I'm on the main stage to kick off the performance at around 5.05, and then I'm up there for maybe 30 minutes, and then I move down to a table in front of Coagula Curatorial, which is the gallery that shows my work, and I'll finish it sometime, my guess at this point is I'll finish sometime between 8 and 10 when the performance, you know, the festival ends. Perfect, and let's just, for people, for, uh, uh, well, this isn't going to air before that, so this is, this is a remnant, this is a remnant. You restate it? No, I don't, no, 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 um, I just, if we can get this on the air while the show is still up, which is very likely, do you just want to tell people where Coagula Curatorial is in Chinatown? Sure. Just so people, as they're listening, they're like, oh, yeah, but they sort of orient it so they can get the, get it in their heads, get it into their Google calendars, and, and actually get down to see the show. Yeah, sure. I can I can let you know. So uh, Coagula Curatorial is in Chinatown on Chungking Road, which is the the walking street uh, that runs parallel to Hill Street, right, right in the heart of Chinatown. I can also tell you that the, um, the post office diptych will be on display in uh, Coagula, at Coagula, as part of the summer group show that begins August 10th, I think. And so people could go see that 
they can also, if if anybody's interested in making the schlep out to Lancaster, I'll be up with a solo show in that museum, the Museum of um, Art and History in Lancaster, starting August 3rd. And that show runs from August 3rd through mid-October. I will be typing for the first week and the last week's of that show um, Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff because Lancaster is right next to Edwards Air Force yeah. Base, which is where yeah. a lot of the test flights that, uh, that Wolfe documented uh, took place, you know, Chuck Yeager and all that. And they, they, I think Chuck Yeager even lived in Lancaster for quite a while. So um, that's, I try to, you know, come up with some type of synergy for the performances that I'm doing. And so it's almost like a back-to-back thing. I mean, I get a, I get a few days off after this end of this performance to, you know, when that thing starts, then a week from Saturday, I think. That's really great. So I, I hope people can make both exhibits here down in Chinatown and out in Lancaster. That's, that's really, I, I look forward to getting the URL for the, the Lancaster uh, exhibit. That, that'll, okay, good. We'll, we'll definitely put that up. Um, why? Right? Let's just, just give us, give us just, you know, at, at what moment did you realize this was, this was what you were going to do? When did, when did really, oops, when did really this, uh, this start to gel in your brain as something you were going to do? My art for the last, really almost a decade now, has had a lot to do with text and literature in different forms. It was only lately, though, that I came to the typewriter. Uh, which on some level kind of is surprising to me when I look back on it, but, you know, you arrive when you arrive, right? And uh, about a year ago, I did a series with Anis Nin's Delta of Venus, the, her collection of erotica. There are 15 um, stories of varying lengths in that, and I bought a bunch of the mass-market paperback editions of that, and I took them apart, and I actually painted out the pages are partially obscured the text and onto each page I rewrote everything with a typewriter onto that page so I retyped it but on multiple pages so I reconstructed the book and I mounted it um, on these these long scrolls of wallpaper and I was you know I enjoyed the process I was into it and and then it occurred to me okay as I'm looking at it formally and seeing these rectangles the positive and the negative you know because if you paint if you mount one page page one you can't see page two so then i had page one here and page two you know and i i started to work out this formal thing because i think my concerns as an artist are are not just the content but the form and what what you create and it got me thinking about okay there's this rectangle and there's a positive and a negative and then somehow that led into my thinking well what if i put it all and really make that negative space very very dense um you know the black space or whatever and then had a mirror image of that you know the white and the dark or the positive and the negative um and that's how i got to it you know it was and it was so it just sort of happened over time it wasn't like aha i woke up in the morning and said hey i'm gonna go make typewriter art and the idea was fully formed i think it took some iterations to kind of land on it i think even when i first started i was more interested in the undersheet you know, I was thinking, okay, this is where the action's going to happen. And then, you know, when I when I finished a few of them and I saw that that what they look like together, it was like an aha moment. Um, and you know, something I didn't know, but was in that the the you know the write up that Christopher Knight did t- today, um, where he talked about the diptych is it goes back to the Middle Ages, and it's 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 a 
almost an abstract representation of a book. I, I didn't know that, and so that makes it even cooler to me. Like that, like here's this thing that's kind of working. There's a connection that I wasn't even aware of that that now I see, and that's a powerful thing. You know that that really locks it in for me. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Um, I guess the question I've been meaning to ask you is, how did you come to find your typewriter store? As I think everyone who still has a typewriter has their own their own narrative of how they've they found their own business supply shop that that, that keeps their typewriters uh, oiled and moving. Well, from what I understand of my searching on the internet, there are only a couple places in in really in in Southern California that deal with typewriters, and. I searched on the internet and, and I read a couple articles about typewriter collectors and, and more than one of the articles talked about this guy at Star Office Machines, Hermano, um, and, and what a great job he's done and how he helps you figure out the right typewriter and he's rescued and fixed celebrity typewriters that were falling apart and all this stuff. And I went in and I, you know, I talked to them and I said, hey, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, the first thing I bought from him was an IBM Selectric 2, a red one, and I went back to my studio and I typed Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas on it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was his typewriter. Yeah. And, um, and so th- that was the first one I did. I did it in my studio and I was happy with the result. And I said, wow, this is great. I'm going to do, do a few of these. And it just kind of kept building on itself as I was working on it in my studio. And then in May, I did my first public performance in, in New York where I went to an art fair that Coagula was at and I started Henry Miller's Tropic of Capricorn at an art fair in Manhattan and typed there for four days and then I moved to Brooklyn and sat on the sidewalk around the corner from Miller's boyhood home for eight days as part of the Henry Miller Memorial Library's week-long celebration of Henry Miller in Brooklyn and I kind of really was into it then because I you know had a lot of interaction with people and you know, not, I'm not a performance artist by, you know, I am now, right? I mean, it's happening, but it's not like you're, you're, I'm going to interrupt you. You're a performance artist. Congratulations. <laughs> right, exactly. But I, it wasn't like in my bag. I wasn't thinking like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm orienting myself towards performance art. But when I did that one, I, I felt like, wow, this is awesome. You know, I'm interacting with people. I'm learning stuff. I'm not just here, you know teaching or telling people stuff i'm getting as much out of this as they could possibly getting out of it i'm probably getting more out of it i'm enjoying it um and so you know whatever that's how it kind of came to be and now i'm hoping to sustain this for my in my mind i've got three years of novels that i want to type okay great so just to, to wrap this up this is this is fantastic so why don't you before you list if you, we, I, 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 if you want to help us look ahead, that would be great with novels. But what I'm more interested in is giving us the chronology of typewriters you've worked through. You mentioned the Selectric. The IBM Selectric was first. We've, we've got the, 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 un, the Royal Quiet Deluxe. We've got the Underwood for post office. Let's, let me stop talking, and you can, you can rattle them off correctly in order and, and help us look ahead to what the machines you're looking to next maybe if only for the Tom Wolf project? Sure. So some of the other uh, typewriters I used, the, the Miller piece in New York, I actually used one of the old Underwood standards, the real you know 1920s. They look yeah. oh, yeah. almost steampunkish. Yeah. It's an awesome machine. I actually, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny. I, I ended that performance accidentally when I knocked the typewriter onto the sidewalk with a day left, 
and I broke it. And so I've stopped the piece. Like, I felt like, okay, that's the end of the piece, right? I mean, I'm not going to, I made it to 298 out of 348 or something like that. Um, you know, Armano's working on fixing that one because it's a beautiful machine. I think, let's see, other typewriters I've used. I typed Bukowski's Women in my studio on an Olympia SG-1, which is a big honking machine. If you remember the Bukowski exhibit out at the Huntington, it was this army green machine yeah. that the the, uh, the lid was off. and yeah. the, you know, So that was that, that machine. Um, let's see, what else have I used? Um, I'm, in September, I'm going to be in Indianapolis at the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library, where I'm going to type Breakfast of Champions on a... Smith Corona Coronamatic 2200, which is also an electric machine, and I've already, in preparation for that, um, typed on that same typewriter, uh, Jailbird, which he wrote. It was either right before or right after um, Breakfast of Champions. In November, I'll be down at Grand Central Arts in Santa Ana, where I'm going to type Philip K. Dick's Scanner Darkly. He, you probably know this, right? I mean, you, you know all this stuff, but he lived in Santa yeah, Ana for yeah, the last decade of yeah, his life. Yeah, yeah. And Scanner Darkly, not only did he write it there, but he set it in the then near, near um, future dystopian Orange County. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's now in the past for us, but it's whatever. So I'm probably messing that up. But when he wrote it, he set it in the future, but only a few years in the future, but in a very weird world of Orange County. So I'm going to type that at Grand Central Arts. Um, and then I know already next May I'll be in Paris with the Henry Miller Memorial Library when they go to celebrate um, the week-long, you know, Miller, his life life in Paris. And of course I'm going to tr- type Tropic of Cancer there, which was his... Yeah. his um, a few other novels that I want to do. Um, I want to type Thomas Pynchon's um, Gravity's Rainbow in Manhattan Beach, the, the duplex that he lived in at the time still exists. Um, what else do I want to do? I'd like to type um, some of D.H. Lawrence's novels in Nottingham. Um, you know, when Christopher Knight was by, um, he, he suggested I do Valley of the Dolls, which I think would be pretty cool. Um, I'd like to type Joan Didion's Play It As It Lays. I think that that's just such an iconic Los Angeles novel, and I'd like to, I'd like to do The Long Goodbye, so I'll be on the, the Chandler tour. You know, to, to brush up. And we'll um, make sure you're in touch with Sybil Davis to make sure you get the typewriter right. Oh, good. We'll, the, the, the daughter of his last secretary we're good friends with. So oh, we'll, we'll make sure that um, the, correct, the correct chronology of, oh, of typewriters used for would... uh, Long Goodbye and Playback are, are, are you're, you're informed of good. Oh, um, so it sounds like Hermano er- is going to be really busy keeping your typewriters well oiled. So that that's that's good. Yeah, that's sure. that. You're you're a busy guy. I'm super excited. I I, I love Philip K. Dick. So we'll definitely be down to see you in Santa Ana because um, Scanner Scanner Darkly they're all really important. Which yeah. other ones do you like? Flow my tears, the policeman said. I, I, uh, they're all great. Ubik is great. They're all Ubik. Right they're they're all. Um, I think Flow my tears is the most structured of his novels right. in some way. And, really and like a man in the high, a man in the high castle. I really like that one. That was early. So I got to figure out like the typewriter story on him. There's a, two typewriters. I think that that he was using in Orange County. He had a manual. I, off the top of my head, I think it was an Olympia, and then he switched at some point to an electric. I think a, a Selectric, um, 
and I'm trying to figure out which he wrote a scanner darkly on. I think it was the manual. I'm reading a biography on him right now um, to try to figure that out, you know. His, could... his, his, his estate is active because they're, they're suing Google over the Nexus, the Nexus phone. They're suing them for because it's they just lifted it from uh, do Android's dream of electric sheep. So so you should you should look into that lawsuit and see if there's an address of an attorney. Of course, of course there is, and then reach out and and and, get, and figure out the the typewriters. We're gonna wrap this up. Everyone should go read Phil K. Dick anyway. <laughs> You're a genius. This is so, no, you are. Come on, this is this is really neat. My wife is smiling. So there's another another vote in your favor. <laughs> Um, all the best all the best on Saturday which is in uh, two days the, the, the wrap up and we'll see you I don't know if we'll catch you in Lancaster but we'll definitely catch you down in Santa Ana and, and, and keep Romano busy just keep keep plugging away well thanks a lot and thanks for uh, having me on the tour right, I did that on purpose you know a few days before this started to get myself fired up so I, I learned a great deal and had a great time so thanks for coming down Thank you, and and we'll see you. We'll see you on the Chandler tour for you to gear up for the long goodbye. Absolutely. Thank you very much. My name is Dennis Justice, a true Angelino, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. I want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of August 5th, 2013. This week we spoke with photographer Scott Smith about his series 29 Palms, and we interviewed performance artist Tim Ude about his typing of Charles Bukowski's first two novels, Post Office and Factotum, at the parking lot of the Terminal Annex in downtown Los Angeles. Kim, if people uh, are listening and they want to give us some feedback, which I certainly hope they do, and I certainly hope they continue to listen and give feedback, how can they go about doing that? Well, the simplest way would be to come to an event, a tour, or a free lava salon, and let us know what you think. Folks have been doing that, and it's very gratifying to hear what uh, interviews they're enjoying and what they think of the show. You can also send us an email to youcaneatthesunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at esotouric.com. And if you are so inclined and you're an iTunes user, we would greatly appreciate your rating the show. Um, it can be found in iTunes, and there's also a link on this podcast page. And if you give us some stars, that helps. And if you say a few words, that helps, too. We're uh, very much hoping that people who like these sort of podcasts will have a chance to find it. And ratings and stars help in that effort. Thank you, Kim. Let's just uh, look ahead to the month of August and, and a little bit into September. Keep keep everyone's long-range plans. Keep them Keep them sort of... Touching, touching home base, getting, getting back to, no, it's first base when you're between set. You're t- touching, got, got a lot of base, got a lot of runners on, on the, the base. bases, and, and you want to keep, keep track of everything. So that's what we're going to do. Hey, what are you doing August 9th? You're introducing a Ringer Bannum film at a location to be determined. I am. You are. So that's something to stay tuned to. We'll, we'll be posting that to Lava on August 8th. Yeah. Okay, so uh, 
my Raymond Chandler bus tours coming up this Saturday, Saturday, August 10th. That leaves from the Los Angeles Athletic Club. It's a lot of fun. It's four hours about Raymond Chandler, the good guys, the bad guys, the real-life good guys, the real-life bad guys. Uh, that, that interesting mapping into Chandler's fiction, Paramount Pictures, you name it. Gelato? It's, it's great. We do stop at Scoops for noir-themed gelato. I always look forward to this four times a year. Then we're going we're gonna to wrap up August with the rest of my Southern California culture series. The 17th, Saturday the 17th, we've got my Boyle Heights Monterey Park Melting Pot Tour. This is a great tour about the history of immigration patterns in these neighborhoods, food, culture, riots, blowouts, and, 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 and that's just with the, uh, the, the 16-year-old Jewish kids in the 30s. And bars where you can grill your own steak. Right. It's a lot of fun. The 24th, the day before our salon, is my public space tour of downtown, what we call the, the lowdown, lowdown on, on downtown. downtown. It's a lot of fun. We've talked at length about Carlton and his participation. Bunker Hill, Historic Core, Art Walk, Virginia you name Square. it. You, you name it. You want to know what's wrong with downtown? Get on this and bus. And what's right? So what's so? How do you fix Pershing? So just just to just to you know hmm. get the ball rolling on thinking about this tour. So people always say to me, "Well, so Pershing Square stinks and blah, blah, blah. You, you you hate Pershing. What well, you hate? Every, you're a hater. You hate everything. Nothing works. How do you fix Pershing Square? Right? What's name me name one thing the city could do to fix Pershing Square? Stop monetizing it. Yeah, it's true. Every time they monetize the park, they close the park. They've been closing the park on Saturdays all day long to get ready for free concerts, which they're selling tickets for at this point. You don't have to buy a ticket, but if you want a good seat, you buy it. Okay, and that there, means there. there's nowhere for people to walk their dogs on okay, Saturdays. So, so there, remember Henry Hope Reed. That will end August with that bus tour. And then, and then the next week is September. Uh, the next week is September, and we're actually not on the bus, Labor Day weekend. That's historically, we, we don't do that. We'll be back the next week, though, Saturday, September 7th, with Hotel Horrors Main Street Vice. And Kim, this is... One of your great tours. This has become one of our most popular tours, which is really nice to see. It's a downtown social history and crime tour. So it's a mixture of just some incredibly heinous murders and the uh, formerly extremely lively entertainment zones of Maine and Broadway. So the burlesque theaters, the taxi dance halls, the places where you could actually see uh, world-class freak entertainment of the sort that you might see on a circus sideshow stage, and also things like um, places where you could actually pick up a real rifle and practice your shooting on Main Street. Lots of excitement, we, lots we, of thrills. We, we, we don't, we don't talk about that case. I know. On the tour. I know we don't. Okay, I just I don't want you to get mad at me. No, I know it's not on the tour anymore. I just okay. really love that. But yeah, it's uh, we we love that part of the world. It's so hard to see what was there. Uh, without some photographic aid, some film aid, and just these stories. Downtown has been uh, transformed so many, many times, and uh, we, we like to go back and follow in the footsteps of all those great Angelinos who got into lots and lots of trouble downtown, and I think you'll enjoy the ride. We also see some beautiful hotel interiors. We've, we've picked the best of the best of the ones that are untouched to share with you. This tour is particularly hard because there's so much to tell, and it takes time to tell a story. And 
before you know it, you've you oh we don't usually tell this story, but we're going to tell you because we're so because it's for yeah. that sounds and, like us yeah and but then you're you're twenty minutes late so we've and, gotten pretty good about not doing that and and you just you just you can't you can't tell every story obviously because you just your bus tour would take an infinite amount of time. But we do talk about almost every B-girl murder in downtown Los Angeles. So if you want to know what happened to the ladies of the bars, it wasn't very pretty. Get on the bus. Okay. And then, and then uh, the the next week, the next week, we'll we'll just we'll stop with the bus tours, and I will throw out the next weekend, the next Sunday is Brian Kaiser's talk about the Bachelder Tile at the Roebling Building at First and Alameda, which is of course now Angel City Brewery. And this is this is going to be a, a lot of fun. And I, I, I want everyone to get excited about that. We're going to open up reservations the third of September, That's a good Monday, idea. the third yeah. of September. We're going to we're going to people op- enjoy their weekend, including yeah. us. Uh, okay, so. So that's it. That's our podcast for the week of August 5th, 2013. Our podcast is called You Can't Eat the Sunshine, and you know that because you've been listening to it. I want to encourage you to keep listening, keep sending us feedback, and I want to remind you... You just said it. You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Solano Candy at Medoria and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between 